Amen. Y'all sound great. Go with me to Exodus chapter number two. And as you're turning in, little little mom joke. A woman goes to the doctor to find out if she's pregnant. She is. And the doctor says, you have any questions? It was her first pregnancy. She said, well, I'm a little concerned. How much pain am I going to go through with childbearing? And the doctor says, well, you know, it varies from woman to woman in pregnancy to pregnancy. And besides that, it's kind of kind of hard to explain the kind of pain. And, and she says, well, can you at least try? Because I'm nervous about this. And he says, all right, well, he said, take your upper lip and stretch it out. She said, like this? He said, a little bit more than that. Like this? Not even a little bit more than that. Like this? And, and he said, well, does that hurt? She goes, yeah, a little bit. He said, now stretch it over your head. That's about what it's going to feel like. <laughs> Moms, we so much appreciate all the pain that you have gone through to bear us in life. And we apologize for all the pain we've caused you. But we love you. And we know that all the moms would say all the pain is worth it. Exodus chapter number 1, verse number 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, Every son who is born shall you cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Exodus chapter 2 verse 1, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to the bathe in the river, and her maidens walked alongside the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then a sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maid went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. One more verse, chapter number 3, the chapter with the bush that was on fire. You know, the bush, the bush, the bush is on. No, just kidding. Verse number 11 says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Today, we are continuing in our series, The Broadway, as in the easy, reckless decisions that we could make that often ruin our lives. Easy decisions, life-wrecking decisions are easy. Life-changing decisions can be difficult. And last week, we talked about how to overcome the life-wrecking decision of unforgiveness because unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to hate or to hurt for it. It doesn't hurt the other person. It hurts us. It wrecks our lives. It, it, It causes us to not fulfill our potential. So last week, we started to talk about how to overcome this decision or this life-wrecking decision of unforgiveness. And without re-preaching last week's message, we said we need to remember in order to forget. And we weren't talking about remembering what they did, but rather remembering what Christ has done for us so we can forget or forgive what they've done to us. And today, I want to continue in this same theme of how do we overcome unforgiveness in our hearts. And I want to talk to you about a subject that God has put on my heart and that I think all of us kind of stress about, and that is outcomes. Outcomes. Outcomes are a big deal, aren't they? We revolve our lives around outcomes. We are anxious about outcomes. We're nervous about outcomes. And for some reason, some way, we feel if the outcome of something is going to be bad and it's been caused by somebody else, then that's a legitimate reason for us to harbor unforgiveness in our hearts. But I want to minister to you today on one of the keys to overcoming unforgiveness as it relates to somebody messing up the outcome. And that's to realize that it's in God's hands. It's in God's hands. I believe that that's a word just right there for somebody. Somebody who is going through something right now. I want you to know it's in God's hands. It's in God's hands. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you speak to our hearts? Would you make this message relevant and real? We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. When I say that it's in God's hands, I don't mean that fatalistically. 
I don't mean que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. I don't mean don't pray because uh, if you pray, it doesn't really matter because it's in God's hands. I don't mean don't take action. I don't mean don't have faith. I don't mean resign yourself to the fact that no matter what you do, God's got a will that's automatically going to take place. And so if it, God wants it to be, then it'll be. If God doesn't want it to be, then it won't be. Matter of fact, if you're in that place of your life when you're going through something, you're in a dangerous place. Because remember what I said at the beginning of the service, sometimes you've got to seize your miracle. How many of you know the woman with the issue of blood seized her miracle? Jesus didn't say, today I'm going to heal that woman. That woman said, today I'm going to be healed. How many of you know there's a difference between the two? Sometimes you've got to seize what God has for you. And so when I say it's in God's hands, I don't mean that fatalistically. What I mean by saying it's in God's hands is that you are in Good hands. When you realize that something is in God's hands, that's good hands. The hands of God are, are good hands because they're the hands that form the universe. They're the hands that hold the world. They're the hands that reach down into the dirt and formed you and I who have a destiny. They are the hands from which he, he reached into mud and, and from mud made a miracle when he put it on somebody else's eyes. Those hands are the hands that when a little bit of bread and some fish passed through, when it passed through those hands, that little boy's lunch fed a crowd of 60,000 people. These are good hands. These are the hands that reached out and touched the eyes of the lepers, uh, of, of blind men and healed them, the skin of lepers and made them whole. These are good hands. When I say you're in good hands, you are in the hands of Almighty God. It's in His hands. It's not just a fatalistic approach. It's an assurance that when something is goes from us to God, that it goes to a good place, a place where miracles can happen. When God touches something. God changes the thing that God touches. Come on, somebody. I hope you're here this morning. You're in good hands. This, when, I, when, I, when I thought about this message, I thought about naming it all state. But you're in better hands than the hands of all state. Matter of fact, how many remembers the song we used to sing when we were little kids? He's got the whole world in his hands. Remember that song? We used to sing it. And, and me and my friends, we would sing it None of us were even church-going kids when we were little, you know. And we used to sing that song. And, and, and did you feel the same way I felt when you sang that song as a little kid? You felt good, didn't you? You felt like, wow, God's got this. You know, you felt protected. You felt like somebody cared for you. You, you felt like somebody was looking out for you. Because he's got the whole world in his hands. And so that's, that, that's the point of view that we are coming from when we say that God's got the whole world in his hands. And, 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 and here's the thing is, you might ask, Pastor, what does this have to do with unforgiveness? That it's in his hands. Well, I was reading this little book this week, and it listed all these reasons why unforgiveness comes. And I want to read them to you, and then I want to talk to you about one reason that, that really jumped out to me. First reason it gave is that unforgiveness comes when we believe the betrayal has not been sufficiently atoned for. So when, when somebody hasn't rectified the situation, like we think that they should, then, then, then we harbor unforgiveness in our heart toward that person. Number two, unforgiveness comes as a defense, that is a, a defense mode to protect the bruised inner self which often is hidden from view or even from our own awareness. So, so we go into unforgiveness because we want to protect ourselves from being hurt anymore. Number three, unforgiveness comes when we feel that we have been deceived in some way and publicly humiliated. Number four, unforgiveness comes when personal trust has been violated. Number five, unforgiveness comes from opportunities lost. Number six, unforgiveness comes when we have been forced to suffer the soul wounds of abuse, neglect, and rejection in silence. But here's the one that jumped out to me. Unforgiveness comes when we believe that our future has been taken from us or irreparably damaged. Unforgiveness comes when we believe that our future has been taken from us or irreparably damaged. That somebody has done something to us that is going to leave a lasting mark that in some way is going to damage what we could have experienced that was better in our future. That somehow, some way, what they did to us is going to stop us from receiving everything that we were supposed to receive. And when, when I heard this, when I read this, here's what I heard the Holy Spirit say to me. He said, what they've done to you can't stop what God has for you. 
Did you get it? Let me, let me say it again. Maybe y'all can get it over here because y'all missed it right here. What they've done to you cannot stop what God has for you. Do, do you get it? Do you understand? One more time over here. What they've done to you can't stop what God has for you. This is, this, this set me free. And, and God gave me this revelation years ago because so many times people will come into your life, right? And they will do stuff that, that we feel some way hurts us long term. And God told me a while ago that Whatever anybody does to you can never, ever, and ever, ever, ever alter anything that I have for you. Matter of fact, all they will do is propel you further and faster into the future that I have for you. And so at some point in your future, you'll actually look back and thank your enemies for what they did. You can't realize it in the middle of the situation. But when you get on the other side of it, you'll be like, well, thank you for pushing me into what God had for me. See, God is so good that God uses everything for our purpose or for his purpose in our lives. What they've done to you cannot stop or prevent what God has for you. Now, that's where Jochebed's story comes in. Who is Jochebed? Jochebed was the mother of Moses. And say, why does she come in here? Because how many of you know that, that mothers know how to overcome unforgiveness? Right? Everybody's always taking it out on their mom. You know, I mean, if something's bothering them, they shoot, they fire at mom. You know, everybody always notices what mom doesn't do. Never notices what mom does do. You know, it's like, it's like, mom, why didn't you make dinner tonight? Like, she makes it every other night. You know, mom, why is my laundry piling up? Because she, she, she does it all the time. I mean, can you give her a break for that one particular time? Right? Everybody's always firing at mom and underappreciating mom and all of that kind of stuff. And so I thought a story about a mom who had to deal with overcoming unforgiveness would be the right kind of story, especially as it pertained to the future that could have been affected from a natural point of view based on what somebody else did. And so I want to go to the story of... Jochebed, and I want you to see that Jochebed, Moses' mom, she lived at a time when the Egyptians were ruling over the Hebrews. The Hebrews were enslaved to the Egyptians, and you know the story. Everybody knows the story of Moses, but most of the time we don't realize it's really not Moses' story. It's really Jochebed's story. You know, whenever you read a Bible story, you can look at it from different perspectives, can't you? You can look at it from the person who the story is revolving around, or you can look at it from the eyes of somebody who is being affected by the person that is being affected or you can look at it from the eyes of the one doing the miracle, the eyes of the one receiving the miracle, all different sorts of ways as we come to the story of Moses' birth Moses is too young to understand what's going on, it's really not his story, it's really Jochebed's story because how many of you know when your kid goes through something, is as much your story as it is their story and so she is being born, or Moses is being born at a time when there is this edict that is issued to kill all of the male children. And Jochebed is going to fight for her child's life. She's going to be the engine behind the experience that Moses would ultimately have. She's going to be the mother that is content to stay in the shadows while her son shines. That's what moms are. That's who moms are. They are the ones who push. They are the ones who propel. They are the ones who teach. They are the ones who stand in our corner. And and the story revolves around how she has to overcome unforgiveness, something done to her by somebody else, in order to experience what God has for us. Matter of fact, um, I learned that, that moms have to uh, realize quick how to overcome everything that's done to them. They forgive without being asked. They do without being done for. Matter of fact, I read this little thing on how you know you're a mom. You know you're a mom when... You're up each night till 10 p.m. vacuuming, dusting, wiping, washing, drying, loading, unloading, shopping, cooking, driving, flushing, ironing, sweeping, picking up, changing sheets, changing diapers, bathing, helping with homework, paying bills, budgeting, clipping coupons, folding clothes, putting to bed, dragging them out of bed, brushing, chasing, buckling, feeding them, not you, plus... Swinging, playing baseball, bike riding, pushing trucks, cuddling dolls, rollerblading, basketball, football, catch, bubbles, sprinklers, slides, nature walks, coloring, crafts, jumping rope, plus raking, trimming, planting, edging, mowing, gardening, painting, and walking the dog. And you get up at 5.30 in the morning, you have no time to eat, sleep, or drink, and you still gain 10 pounds. That's how you know you're a mom. Right? 
Moms are experts at all sorts of things. One of them is learning how to overcome forgiveness. And so here is Jockben. And Jockben is having a baby or going to have a baby at a time when there's an edict to kill all the male children. Now, you would think if you were living in a time where uh, if you had a baby that was a baby boy, that it's going to be killed, that you would say to your spouse, we're going to need to shut this down for a minute. Let me know what I'm talking about. You, you, you wouldn't risk, right, having a baby by getting pregnant because there's a 50% chance that baby is going to be killed. And so, you know, you'd get with your spouse, we're going to have to shut this down for a little season right here. But how many of you know Amram wasn't having none of that? And so sure enough, Jochebed gets pregnant. And she gets pregnant, and when she gets pregnant, you've got to put yourself in her shoes. This has got to be the worst nine months of her life. Not because of the swollen ankles and not because of the the unwanted weight gain and not because of the morning sickness and not because of the crazy cravings. This is a a terrible nine months because of the anxiety of wondering about the outcome. Is this going to be a boy or a girl? You got to imagine that during that nine months, Jochebed and Amram, who was her husband, Moses' father, they got to be praying as hard as they've ever prayed. God, please. Give us a baby girl. God, please make sure that this is not a baby boy. Because the last thing we want to do when our child is born is kill our child. Sorry, I didn't mean to say anything that was socially relevant right there. Hello? Because the last thing we want to do is birth our child and then kill our child. I'm not being political right now. I'm being biblical right now. Please, God, we don't want this to be a baby boy. Please make it a baby girl. Sure enough, they're praying, praying. I can see her waking up in the middle of the night, night sweats, thinking, God, what's the matter? What's the matter, honey? Nothing. I just had another nightmare. Well, what was it about? I don't even want to say it. Probably dreaming about our child being thrown into the crocodile-infested Nile River and being eaten alive. The worst nine months of her life, not the glow of pregnancy that women normally have as they look forward to and they say, feel the kick over here. Every kick that she feels, she probably was like, is that a boy kick or is that a girl kick? How do I tell if it's a boy or a girl? Is she, is, am, I, am I carrying low or am I carrying high? Because that tells whether you're having a boy or having a girl. She's, everything is being analyzed. Is it a boy or is it a girl? And then finally the day comes and the labor pains come on her like a thief in the night. And sure enough, she gives birth, but she doesn't want to look. And she's caught in this quandary. Should I look down and grab and hold my baby? But oh, I don't want to look because I'm too terrified to know, is it a boy or is it a girl? So instead of looking down, she looks over and she looks at Amram. And she asks him, well, what is it? And his face drops and he doesn't say a word, but his expressions say the whole thing. It's a baby boy. And But God, we prayed. But God, we asked you. God, we, we, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we said, God, please, we want this to be a baby girl. And God, now you've given us a baby boy. And God, what are we going to do now? And God, this baby is now going to be have to be thrown into the crocodile-infested Nile River in order to be killed. God, we didn't want this to happen. God, and she goes into the worst pain that she could ever experience because if it was only pain for herself, every mother knows when you go through pain for yourself, you just muscle up and deal with it. But when you watch your child go through pain, It's a pain that is from another world. And she's thinking this is is pain caused by someone else. This is not pain she caused. This is not pain because she chose to make poor decisions while she was pregnant. This is not pain. Her child is not born with an uncaused illness. Her child is not born with a caused illness. It's not, be, it's not, it's not being born a, a certain kind of way because they drank and they drugged along the way. It's, she's not bringing her child into a situation where the child has no father because she hooked up with a deadbeat man who ran off afterward. She's not bringing her child into a situation where there's no family unit intact. She's not doing any of that. This is a situation of pain and hurt and bitterness because somebody else did something to her. And she's carrying it in her heart. What do you do when the pain is real? The bitterness is real. It's warranted. It's because somebody really did do something. Jochebed begins to speak to us by her actions. And the first thing we learn from the text is that if we are going to overcome unforgiveness, we have to realize, number one, don't turn to the blame game. 
We think that blame will make us feel better. We think that if we really have that, the person... It's going to make us feel better. We think that revenge feels good. Can I tell you what revenge does? All it does is lock you up more. It doesn't relieve you of the pain. And she gets involved because how many of you know that when you get go through a situation, there's normally a process before you get to the place of faith that God wants you to be at. You don't have something happen to you and all of a sudden go, okay, I'm exactly doing what God wants me to do. Normally there is a process. Normally what happens is that you go through all of the human emotions before you land at the place where you could say, okay, I'm good now. And God, me and you are going to work this thing out. And so she's processing through. And one of the things she probably does in order to process through the pain of what somebody else did for her is she gets involved in the blame game. And at first it's Pharaoh's fault. Of course it is. It's his fault and because he's power tripping and because he's power hungry and because he's afraid that, that his throne is in jeopardy and he starts to, to make sure he curbs the, the Hebrew population so that the Hebrews don't get bigger than the Egyptians and overtake them. And now he's, not only has he done it to her people, but now he's done it to her family and now he's done it to her baby. And so there's a hurt. It's his fault. But how many of you know when you get involved in the blame game, anybody in the line of fire gets blamed? It's not just the person who did it's fault. Now guess whose fault it is. Now it's Amram's fault. You did this to me. I told you we needed to shut it down for a minute. I told you that we needed to, you know, kind of abstain for a season here because, you know, I knew this could, could happen. But, but no, you had to be selfish and it had to be all about your needs. And now look at what you, you did to me. Matter of fact, get out of the tent. You can go sleep somewhere else right now because I'm not going to have none of that. Now all of a sudden it's Amram's fault because when we get involved in the plain blame game, everybody in the line of fire gets the blame. And all of a sudden what we think is going to make us feel good is not making us feel good. We're getting grouchy and we're bitter and we're, we're harboring and we're not nice to be around. And all these things because we're trying to put blame on somebody because it's our way of trying to defend ourselves. and our way of trying to make ourselves feel better. And then here's what happens when we get caught up in the blame game. Oftentimes blame turns into shame. And guess what? It eventually becomes our own fault. We eventually point the finger at us. And I'm sure she did this. It's my fault. It's my fault. How could I allow this to have happened? Why wasn't I smarter? Why didn't I, why didn't I protect against? Why didn't I insist that we shut it down for that season? I can't believe he let me talk. He let, he talked me into that. It's my fault. And what happens a lot of times is when you are victimized, you eventually blame yourself. But can I encourage somebody and let you know the old fashioned say, the devil is a liar. Somebody did something to you. It is not your fault. And what the enemy wants to do is the enemy wants you to put shame on you to keep you in that place of not being able to be and experience everything that God has you to be. And so what do we need to do? We need to realize that there's only one person that can take the stain of shame and blame out of our lives. And that's Jesus Christ. We need to, we need to turn to him. I heard this story. It's called the, the Black Bull of Narrow Way. Narrow way, like the narrow way, the broad way, the narrow way. But narrow way is a place, not necessarily the narrow way. But I thought it was interesting that I heard this story. It kind of fit. And it's the story of a Swedish fairy tale. Kind of like Cinderella a little bit. And in the Swedish fairy tale, there's this fair maiden who is adopted or taken in by this wicked stepmother who has three daughters. And she's made to be a servant girl to the whole family. And uh, she's locked out from the outside world. She has nothing, no idea what's going on in the outside world, just, just like Cinderella. And then all of a sudden there's, a, there's this prince in the kingdom and he goes out to war and he kills somebody in war and he lives with the guilt of having killed the person in war. And to make matters worse, he gets a blood stain on his royal robe or his tunic and he can't get the blood stain out. And so he's always looking at this and he's being reminded of the thing that was done that was wrong over and over again. That's, that's what the devil does, doesn't he? He kind of keeps the stain on you. Keeps, keeps reminding you over and over and over again. And then the, the funny thing about it is if you get around the wrong type of Christians, they'll, they'll, just, they'll just be the devil's advocates because they'll remind you over and over and over again. They'll hold you hostage forever for what you did that was wrong before. But I want you to know that Jesus set you free the moment that you say, God, forgive me. And so uh, he's got the stain on his royal tunic, and so he can't get it out. So he makes this big announcement in the kingdom, and he says in the kingdom, he says, any fair maiden in the kingdom who can get the stain out, she'll be my princess and eventually the queen of the kingdom. And so all the ladies come out from the woodwork, and they want to marry the prince and all this kind of stuff. You can see how misogynistic these stories always are, right? In, in any case, all the ladies come out from all the land and everything, and nobody can get the stain out. Well, well, it's just by chance, 
The royal tunic happens to be in a pile of laundry that the fair maiden that is enslaved to the wicked stepmother uh, is going to wash. And she, without even thinking about it, without even knowing whose it was and who it belonged to, she washes it and she gets the stain out. And then the, the wicked stepmother, she sees that the stain is out. She takes the tunic and her oldest daughter and she brings them to the prince and she says she took it out. But the prince is smart. He figures it out and he eventually realizes that it was the fair maiden who had been locked up and she becomes the princess of the kingdom. And the moral of the story is only your true love can get the stain out can i just encourage somebody who came in here today carrying a stain of shame carrying a weight on you maybe you can't forgive you maybe it's not 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 even that you can't forgive somebody else maybe you can't forgive you can i tell you your true love has gotten a stain out there is nothing too strong for the blood of jesus when jesus blood was spilt it was spilt for every single stain you don't have to live with shame for the rest of your life And so we need to turn away from the blame game. But the second thing that we need to do and the second thing that we need to realize is that when we put it in God's hands, when we put it in God's hands, great things begin to happen. And so second point is we need to turn our trying into trust. Let's go back to the story of Jochebed. Jochebed tries whatever she can to fix the circumstance. Look at it, verse number two. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hit him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she tried to fix it, but she couldn't. How many of you know there are going to be situations in your life where you can't fix? How many of you know that's the way it's supposed to be? You didn't like that, did you? You like to be able to fix everything, right? That makes life easier. It makes life funner. Stay in faith longer. But how many of you know if we could fix every, everything on our own, we would never need God? How many of you know that scripture that says God will never give us too much to handle, more than we could bear? You know that scripture? It's actually kind of not true the way we interpret it. How many of you know if God ever gave us nothing that we couldn't handle, then we would never need God? The context of the scripture is God will never give us nothing that we and he can't handle. And when it's we and he, he'll always provide a way of escape. God wants you to get some stuff that you can't handle. Because when you can't handle it, you turn yourself over to God. And she tried and she tried and she tried to hide him, to fix it on her own. How do I fix this? How do I make it so that what they did doesn't hurt me permanently? I'm going to fix this on my own. I'm going to do what I need to do. But eventually she couldn't anymore. She could no longer hide him. She took an arc of bulrushes for him. She dabbed it with asphalt and pitch. She put the child in it. By the way, did you notice asphalt and pitch? They're not good things. How many of you know that sometimes God will give you a safety net in the middle of bad things? How many of you know that God takes all sorts of things, good things, bad things, ugly things, and he brings them all together to make something that is a safe place for us? God can take whatever the enemy brings against your life and mold it together in such a way that it will produce a safe place for you. Takes all this, she makes a, a little basket. She puts the child in it. She laid it in the reeds on the river's bank. All she could do, she eventually said, God, I can't do no more. Tried and I tried and I tried. And here's what she did. She put him in a basket. But what she was saying was, God, I'm putting this outcome in your hands. She wasn't saying, God, I'm giving up. She's saying, God, here's what I'm doing. I've done everything that I can. And how many of you know you ought to do everything that you can? You ought to be as obedient as you can. You ought to, you ought to be, you know, do whatever God asks you to do. But at the end of the day, there's certain times where you have to say, God, okay, the outcome is now in your hands. But she wasn't doing it fatalistically because she put him in a basket. I think that's so significant. The Hebrew word is ark. She put him in an ark. How many of you know the story of Noah's ark? So did they. The Hebrew children were all told about Noah's ark and how God put them in the ark, the place of safety. When everything was happening on the outside, they were kept safe on the inside. Here was she was doing, she was doing, she was saying, God, at this moment, I don't know what else to do. All I know to do is to put them in your good, good hands. And the same way, God, that you kept Noah and his family safe from the flood and the danger that was happening on the outside, I'm trusting that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I'm putting my child in your good, good hands. How many of you know God gives you yesterday's victory? Victories so you can fight today's battles. How many of you know you got to remember the good things? 
See, the enemy wants us to remember all the bad things when we're experiencing challenges in life. But the onus is on us to say, you know what? I'm going to choose to remember the good things. I'm going to choose to do what, to remember what God did for me then and what God did for me then and what God did for me then and what God did for me then. Because as you begin to remember enough of the what God's did, what God did then, you'll realize that God can do it now because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he did it before, he could do it again. Fill your mind with good reports whatever things are good and whatever things are just and whatever things are holy and whatever things are virtuous if there be any virtue if there be any praise think on these things remember the good things from yesterday it'll propel you to believe that God can do them today she released the child into God's good good hands can I tell you why you can turn your trying into trust because if you notice on under number two on your outline it's because God will make your enemy part of the process. God will make your enemy part of the process. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? I hate my enemy. Don't we all hate our enemies? Anybody really love your enemy? Come on, real like, like, like love like we, you know, you got this affection in your heart for your enemy. You know, even though God says love your enemies and do good to those who despitefully use you, we, this is an area we struggle with. Matter of fact, it's one of the first verses when you read it, you're like, yep, I'm never going to obey that. Right? As if it's optional, right? Isn't it amazing how we read the scripture as if it's optional? We're like, we're reading it like, I could do that. I could do that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay. Eh, maybe sometime. Never going to do that one. Right? It's funny. We really do do that in our minds instead of just being like, God, you know better than we do. And God, you've, you've asked us to do this, not to hurt us, but to help us. We, this is one of them things. God, I'm not going to love my enemy. We hate our enemies. But God taught me years ago that we ought to love our enemies because our enemies are usually part of the process. Exhibit A. His name was Joseph. His brothers who were his enemies. How many of you know sometimes your enemies can be close? Matter of fact, your worst enemies are your closest enemies. Because who cares what somebody who you don't love does to you? Just write them off. But when somebody close to you does something, that's a serious enemy. His brothers, they sold him into a pit. From a pit he went and became a slave in Potiphar's house. In Potiphar's house... He was, a lie was told about him. He was thrown into prison. But when he was thrown into prison, he met a butler and a baker in prison who introduced him to a pharaoh who was having a dream that he couldn't interpret. And Joseph came out of prison in order to interpret the dream for pharaoh. He interpreted the dream, was promoted to prime minister, wound up in the palace. If there was no pit, there would have been no prison. If there was no prison, there would have been no palace. If there was no palace, there would have been no destiny. But listen, if there was no enemy, there would have been no palace because your enemy is part of the process. Watch this. Exhibit B. Jesus himself. Judas comes to betray Jesus with a kiss. You remember what Jesus said? He said, friend. Huh? Jesus, you know this dude has just sold you out. Jesus, Jesus, you knew this, this dude right here just kissing you, not because he loves you, he's kissing you because he's pointing you out to everybody so they can attack you. Why are you calling him friend? Jesus said, because my enemy's part of the process. Jesus said, see, Judas just, all he did was push me further into my destiny. Remember before I told you there will come a time where you look back on your circumstance, you might have to call your enemy and say thank you. You might not be able to do it in the middle of your circumstance because how many know you when you're in the middle? But once you see what God does, once you see how God takes what the enemy made for evil and turns it around for good, you might just call a few enemies and you might just say, I need to thank you, friend, for doing what you did for me because what you meant for evil, God has turned around for good. Exhibit C. How many of you know let everything be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Exhibit three, Jacobin. She put him in the ark. God, he's in your hands. God, I've done everything I can do, but I now put the future of my child and the outcome of my child's life in your hands. And God, as I release the outcome into your hands, I pray that you help me deal with what's going on in my heart because I really hate what the enemy has done to me. Jacobin tells Miriam, Miriam, go watch. I'm going to put him in the basket. I'm going to float him down the river. Miriam was the sister of, of Moses. Go watch what happens. Can you see little Miriam? She's, she's chasing him down the river. 
the basket's floating. It hits the wrapper. It's oh, no, no, baby's okay. All right, God saved him from tipping over. It's a rock. Oh no, it's all right. How many of you know the process to your destiny hits some rough water sometimes? How many of you know that's the place that God builds your character? God gets you, God gets you ready. God gets you ready because nothing that God wants you to do is ever easy. There's always a fight. And so if you're fighting hard, it must be because God is preparing you for something big. God is building some resilience on the inside of you. Never get discouraged by your fight. If you've got a hard fight, it means that God's got a great plan for you. Finally, the basket floats to a peculiar place. To a place that seems like, of all places. How many has ever found yourself in a peculiar place? God, I don't know. I prayed and here's where I'm at. Seriously, God, the place that the basket floats to is the exact spot that an extension of the enemy, an extension of the person who did this to her is waiting. Pharaoh's daughter is bathing in the river. And at the exact time that she's bathing, how many of you know you can't time when you send something down the river when it will arrive at a place? How many of you know the way the water is what controls how fast it gets there? The the stuff that's in the way determines how fast it gets there. But the timing of the situation, the basket passed the place that an extension of the enemy was bathing in. Pharaoh's own daughter at that precise place. Come on, somebody. God is aligning your destiny for you. He's moving things, but it doesn't look like he's moving things. God, of all the places, we prayed I put this in your hands and you floated my baby down the river into the hands of the enemy. God, disappointed with you. It's your fault. See, the blame game keeps going. We don't realize half the time that don't judge the story before the ending. God's still working. God's still moving. And Miriam runs back home. Can you imagine her telling Jacob the story? What happened, Miriam? What happened? Oh, no, 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 tell me. Mom, you're never going to believe what this happened. Mom, baby Moses floated right into Pharaoh's daughter. No, you've got to be kidding me. How could God allow this to happen? Don't tell me. I don't want to hear it. She, she took him out of the basket into the river, executed him just like our father said. No, mom, it's not what happened. What happened? She, she, she took him out. I know what she did, Mary. She took him out. She fed him slow to the crocodiles, didn't she? Isn't it amazing where our mind goes? Assuming the worst before the worst has even happened. No, mom, that's not what happened. What happened? No, don't tell me, mom. You never gonna believe what happened. She picked him up out of the basket. She looked at him as if he was a gift from God. When a man's ways are right with God, he'll make even his enemies to be at peace with him. He picked him up as if, as if he was a gift from God. He looked at me. He said, "Mama, mama." He said, "Go and get one of the Hebrew midwives, so that." The baby could be nursed. And mama, I'm coming back because you're going to nurse little baby Moses. He probably wasn't even called Moses by me, by, by, by Jacobed. He going he to nurse whatever his Hebrew name was. Come on, you're going to nurse him. We're moving into the palace today. Mama, don't you understand that this would have never happened unless the enemy issued an edict to throw Moses into the crocodile-infested Nile River. Moses would have stayed a slave, but because of what the enemy did, he's now going to be raised as a prince. Your enemy is part of your process. Some of you would stay in a place that you should never be in had it not been for how God uses your enemy to manipulate the outcome. You can have faith. Turn your trying into trust. They may have tried to kill you, may have tried to set you up, may have tried to stop you, discredit you, disqualify you, lied about you, abused you, may have tried to keep you bound. But 
What they've done to you cannot stop what God has for you. Second thing I want to share with you, and then I'll be done, is that you can turn your trying into trust because God doesn't waste anything. Nothing wasted. God's very frugal. You're not frugal, you know, as in cheap. Some people use the word frugal to cover up for the fact that they're cheap. That's not what I'm talking about, right? You know? But God's frugal. You don't waste nothing. God, God likes to, to use every little thing. We notice about God. We know he doesn't waste our tears. He doesn't waste our tragedies. He doesn't waste our, our bad moments in life. He repurposes them. I'm reminded of the miracle of the five loaves and two fishes. More accurately, the five crackers and two small sardines, right? This is a little boy's lunch. We think about it. It was like, you know, loaves of Italian bread this big and giant bass. It wasn't that. It was five, lo- five little crackers and two small sardines. There was a hungry crowd, and the little boy said, well, here, use my lunch. I want to share my lunch. Sharing is caring. Guess what he did, though? He said, I'm going to let it leave my hand. Guess what I'm going to do with it? I'm going to put it in the hands of Jesus. How many of good things happen when you put it in the hands of Jesus? When it passed from the little boy's hands to the hands of Jesus, that, that little bit of crackers and that little bit of fish, all of a sudden, it fed everybody. A group of 5,000 families, probably 60,000 in number, a stadium-sized crowd. And the Bible says they all ate until they were stuffed. That's why I believe Jesus was Italian, even though the Bible says he was Hebrew. Here's what I love about it, though. Everybody got done eating. Jesus said, y'all want some more? Because I could just let it pass through these hands again. Y'all want some more? Because I could just let it pass through these hands again. Put it in his hands. They said, no, Esther, we can't eat no more. Here's what Jesus said. He said that I want you to go and pick up the fragments so that nothing is wasted. He could have said, good, mission accomplished. But there was a little boy who shared his lunch. A lot of people believe, well, 12 basketfuls, 12 disciples. He didn't give that reward to the disciples. It wasn't their seed, so they didn't earn that harvest. He, he gave 12 because he had 12 people to carry for the little boy. I believe that little boy could have been poor. Maybe his mom just scraped together a little lunch that day. Imagine when he was running home. Mama, mama, you're never going to believe this. I know it's hard for you to fix me lunch today, but we got food for the next year. How come? Because I put it in the hands of Jesus. Put it in his hands. He don't waste nothing. Pick up all of the fragments and bring it back. He doesn't waste a thing. Nothing wastes. I'm reminded of the story of Jairus in the Bible. His daughter's ready to die. The point of serious illness. Runs to Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Put on your running shoes. We got to hurry up. My daughter's about ready to die. Come quickly. Jesus is going. The crowd is thronging him. And we know the story. I mentioned it at the beginning of the service. A woman with an issue of blood. Come on, somebody. You got to fight for your miracle. A woman with an issue of blood. You know what she did? She Fight, she fought her way through the crowd. She didn't look and say, well, I can't do it because there's so many people in the way. She said, you know what? I'm not going to leave until I touch Jesus. Some of you need to come to church with a little bit more expectancy. Some of you need to come to church with, with this tenacity that says, I'm not leaving until I get what I came for. I'm not leaving until I experience the touch of God. Your miracle is not as dependent upon God as it is on you. Even though the outcome is in his hands, you got to put it in his hands. The woman she fought through, she interrupted, she touched Jesus, he stopped. Jairus said, yo, Jesus, what you stopping for, bro? Jesus said, somebody touched me. He said, duh. There's a crowd. Of course somebody touched you. He said, no, this was a different kind of touch. How many know people reach out for Jesus all the time? There are certain touches that draw out the anointing. Certain touches that don't do nothing come with some expectancy. Don't case Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. That doesn't draw out nothing from God. She touched him. She said, I'm going to get what I came for. Jesus stops, looks around, calls her the woman. This is the Bible says the woman told Jesus the whole truth. This is a 12-year process. I believe Jesus did like this. Go ahead. Yeah, really? What else happened? Can you see Jairus? What in the world are you doing, Jesus? I just told you my daughter's ready to die. Why are you sitting down listening to this woman tell all that foolishness? Because when a woman determines to tell you the whole truth, that ain't a short story. 
I know it's Mother's Day and everything like that, but I learned something a long time ago. I learned that if you try to make it short, it just gets longer. So you know what I do? I just give me a cup of coffee, and I'm like, yeah, girl, go ahead. What else happened? I actually don't, but it kind of fit with the message. And this woman is telling Jesus how Jesus was the only one able to do the impossible in her life. He was, she was telling Jesus, I went to everybody for 12 years. I went to this doctor, they couldn't do it. And that doctor, they couldn't do it. And Jesus, this happened to me and that happened to me. And everybody had my death sentence written off. But Jesus, I came to you and I knew that you could do what nobody else could do. And all of a sudden, Jairus was listening to the testimony of somebody sharing with how Jesus could do the impossible. And while Jairus was listening, he got news that something had to happen that would defy the impossible because his daughter died and he heard a testimony how God could do the impossible. Why was there an interruption? Because God doesn't waste anything. Nothing, nothing wasted. Nothing wasted. Nothing wasted. Jockbed story. By the way, how about Joseph before we go back to Jockbed? The pit was a portal to slavery. Slavery was a portal to prison. Prison was a porthole to the palace. Palace was a place of destiny. Pit was uncomfortable. Anybody want to spend a night in a pit? Anybody want to spend a few years in prison? Would anybody look back on those years? Oh, best time of my life. Anybody want to be enslaved for a few years? Wonderful. How wonderful slavery is. God took all those bad experiences. They became portholes to the palace. Why? God doesn't waste anything. I don't know what bad stuff you've been through. I don't know what stuff you think came to wreck your life. I don't know what you think your enemy has done to you, but I came here today to remind somebody that no matter what they've done to you, they can't stop what God has for you. Talk then. Moses is drawn out of the water. Look what the Bible says. I love this. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. He became her son. And she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Now, if you were Jacobin, is that what you would name your kid? A reminder of the worst nine months of your life? She looked at it from a good point. I got a gift from the water. Jacobin is looking at this going, ain't no way I'm naming my kid Moses. I'm going to call him something else on the side. Because I don't want to remember those nine. I don't want to remember that time when my heart was in my chest as I released him into the crocodile infested Nile River and I had to just, just close my eyes and turn away and just, I didn't know what was going to happen. I'm not naming him Moses, but the Bible says she called him Moses because he was drawn out of the water. Now Moses probably asked the question, why you all call me Moses? Because in Bible names, names were commemorative of significant events. And, and I could listen to the princess tell the story. Well, one day you was floating down the river. A river that had crocodiles in it. I know how you made it through. Is that your testimony? Don't know how I made it through. But I'm here. I know how, I made it, how you made it through, but you made it through. You came all the way to me. And I drew you. I, I saved you from the waters that should have killed you. Say, so why is that significant? Fast forward. Moses commits some mistakes along the way, even though he's born for a purpose. I want to remind somebody you're born for a purpose. Commits some mistakes along the way. Commits murder along the way. You would think murder would disqualify him from his destiny. Can I tell you, there's nothing that can disqualify you from your destiny if you'll get back on the horse again. One of my favorite scriptures is Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans. You heard me preach it before. God doesn't have a plan for you because we are too human to stick to one plan. We will mess up a plan. And so God said, I don't got one plan for you. I got plans for you so that you can get to the future. So if you go this way and mess it up when you were supposed to go that way, I've already figured out how you can get back to this way again. God's not going to let you mess it up. Just keep fighting. Moses makes some mistakes. Commits murder on the backside of a mountain. The bush, the bush, the bush is on fire. Some of you are like, yeah, I remember that song. God says, go to Pharaoh. 
Tell them to let my people go. Moses said, who am I? That I should go before Pharaoh. See, your shame will try to define you for the rest of your life. Who am I? I'm a murderer. Can I just encourage you, look in the right mirror. The Bible says whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, that's the word of God. Don't look into the mirror of what you've done. That's not your mirror anymore. Your mirror is the word of God. It's what Jesus has done for you. When you look into the mirror, don't see yourself because that's not who gets echoed from the mirror. The image that comes from the mirror is the image of Jesus Christ. And the more fire you've been through, the greater the image of Christ in your life becomes because the fire burns off the impurities in your life. Who am I? I'm a murderer. God said, no, you're not. You're Moses. Yeah, but God, that's the name the enemy gave me, Moses. God said, but do you know what it means? He said, yeah. It means drawn out from the water. Literally saved from the water. God said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses does finally. Pharaoh does. Moses and the people, good old times. They're, they're going from slavery into the promised land. From slaves to princes, if you will. All of a sudden, Pharaoh changes his mind, starts chasing them down. They got a Red Sea in front of them. And now all of a sudden, in order for them to go from slaves to princes, from slaves to the promised land, they got to make it through water that's supposed to kill them again. Everybody else is fearful, but Moses knows, I'm Moses. I've been drawn from the water. I've been given a name by my enemy that declares my future. My enemy has prophesied my promise. God has used the very enemy that tried to curse me to bless me with their words. I know what's going to happen as I walk through this water. God, the same way he did when I was born, rescued me from the water. Is the same way God is going to snatch me from the water now. I am Moses, saved from the water. God will use what your enemy has done to bless your life. God won't waste anything. He won't waste a name. He won't waste an experience. He will repurpose everything. Not everything is caused by God. Don't misunderstand me. But anything that comes your way, if you'll just say, God, it's in your hands. Here here you go, God. Use it. God is amazing how he molds stuff. You ever watch a potter? You know what? You know what? a potter uses as, as their primary vehicle to make is mud. How many know sometimes life is muddy? But that's why God's called the potter. Because he just, don't worry about it. I'm, I specialize in mud. Watch this here. He specializes in mud. He specializes in dirt. You and I started off as dirt. I think we turned out pretty good, don't you? Imagine if I gave you dirt and said, go ahead and create a human being. God specializes in mud. He works miracles with mud. And guess how he does it? He does it with his hands. God reached down, the Bible said, into the dirt. He touched it with his hands. And from his hands came the miracle of you and I. Put it in his hands. You are in good hands with God. The outcome is in his hands. Don't keep it in your hands. Let you stand to your feet.